This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everybody, welcome to the Wonderful World of Remnant Radio. In today's program, we're talking about denominations and church history. Where do they come from? How did we get here? It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Denominations, it's an interesting subject. We're going to talk a lot about that today. Before we dive into the subject today, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio and maybe by the time that this is released, is very close to reaching 100,000 subscribers. It might already be there. I don't know. Which means you need to hit the subscribe button and or share this video around so that we can hit that 1,000 member subscribe button. Member? No, not member. Uh, anyway, to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded, we have placed links in the description. Top two links, one for PayPal that you can give any one-time gift, or you can give on Patreon. As low as five bucks a month, you'll get access to extra content. Now, I'm really excited today because... I've got my buddy Michael with me, and it's Monday, and I also have my other buddy Michael with me. Look at all what? the Michaels. What? It's a Monday. We're breaking the trend. Crazy. Very exciting. Uh, Miller, we want to have you on shows more on Monday when we're doing like, you know, just like content that we can handle. And we're talking about church history. You guys mm-hmm. excited? What do you want to start talking about? Where, where, where would you like to introduce the subject matter today? Oh, lots of places we could begin. But, uh, you know, we're talking about denominations and the real splintering of official denominations happened pretty well down the line. Uh, I mean, the biggest markers are the Great Schism of uh, 1054 between the Eastern and the Western Church, and we'll kind of build toward that. And then, of course, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, But there were important mile markers along the way, one of which was the Edict of Milan in 313, when Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal. And the reason this was significant in the historical development of Christianity is because now Christianity had this protective umbrella to consider some different kinds of questions besides, how do I stay alive? <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> it became more of, you know, as, as heresies started to rise up, like Arianism, bishops would begin to, uh, now under the cover of Rome and the Roman sword even, like, hey, you can't come after these bishops. You can't kill them. They're going to come together and they're going to make some statements together. And so we have that in 325, the original Nicene Creed, which had a little bit of an update in 381. And at the time, there was this burgeoning movement of Arianism. And in fact, in the early church, it was it was almost like it was like majority Arianism and then majority not Arianism, aka Orthodox. 
Arianism believed there was a time when Jesus was not. They believed that Jesus was divine-ish. Not like the Father is divine, but uh, the Father was greater than all, but Jesus was sort of like this divine but created being. They probably wouldn't use the word worship to define what they would their activity toward him, at least not in the unique way they worshiped the Father. But there was this sort of reverence for him as the firstborn over all creation and so on. And this became a big battle. And so in 325, you had the Nicene Creed. And in 381, uh, the little update, everybody agreed on that. And that kind of takes us into, in 431, the Council of Ephesus. Josh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Or if you guys want to chime in on the Nicene Creed. Uh, I'd like to chime in a little, a little bit. bit on Nicaea because there's a lot of misrepresentations of what took place at Nicaea. Many people will say that Constantine made uh, Christianity the religion. That's not true. He just made Christianity legal. Another myth that arises is that Constantine tried to create the doctrine of the Trinity. And at Nicaea, they were developing the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, not true. You go throughout church history, whether it be the Didache or Irenaeus against the heresies, uh, you've got a lot of really great Christian theology before uh, the First Council of Nicaea in 325. So you have a bunch of guys gathering around who are, who are considered bishops. They're, they're regional oversights of certain churches in certain regions. And, and they're saying, hey, uh, this guy's teaching this, this Valentinus dude, these Gnostics, they're, they're teaching these things. They're bad. They're evil. Don't follow them. So what Nicaea was to do is it gathered all of these bishops to figure out where the line was on Christianity. So, you know, you've made a, a religion legal now, Christianity. So what is that? You know, if someone over here, if Valentina says, hey, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christianity, and they start saying Christianity is where, you know, uh, uh, Satan is the brother of Jesus, and the Old Testament God is mean, evil, and wrathful, and Jesus comes and saves us from the Old Testament God. Well, that's not Christianity. So what was what was uh, 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 Constantine making legal? He had to figure out the parameters of what the Christian faith was. So all of these bishops got together and said, this is us. Everything outside of us is not Christian. Now, there's a lot of different articulations in scholarship of what actually took place on Nicaea. A lot of secular scholars will say, this is when the Christian you know, religion was defined. This is when the Christian religion invented these doctrines. But again, through the text of Holy Scripture, through the ancient writings predating Nicaea, we can see that the historic Christian churches always believed in the Trinity. They've always believed in grace through faith. They've always believed that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were one unified God. And then there is these heretics that begin to arise reading texts of Scripture and, and distorting them. So, so like you said, uh, Michael, Christian faith has been around since Jesus died, buried, rose from the dead. It's always been around. But was it defined in a succinct way so that we could tell what is Christian and what is not Christian? And the Council of Nicaea in 325 defined those teachings. That council was later updated in 381, which is called the Nicene Constantinople or Constant. Anyway, I can't say all the words. Uh, sometimes I want to say Constant Constantpolitan, which is like Neapolitan ice cream. Anyway, uh, Constantinople Creed, uh, which added works of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Later, the, the Pope would add and the Son, the Folioque Clause. But it said he has spoken through the prophets, uh, is worshipped and glorified. We added doctrine on the Trinity in 381. But again, most of the church still unified around that creed. Um, but that really defined what was Christian. I, I wouldn't and say what was added not. doctrine, maybe added language to define the biblical doctrine. 
<laughs> that, that's a good, well, it that's definitely, a good uh, articulation. It definitely added, it, it added a doctrine to the creed. In other words, the, right. the creed spelled out a list of different doctrines that they had believed historically always to be true. I mean, always been true, but then also included more doctrines in there. Not that they invented those doctrines. They're just now including them in there to. And most of this stuff is always a safeguard against heresy. I mean, the reason mm -hmm. these creeds existed was to differentiate itself. Now, I'm just curious, Josh, when you were doing your own research on this, um, I, it was my understanding that Constantine's contribution to all of this was just forcing them to get together and have the conversation and solidify something. Is that correct? So it's not that yeah, he absolutely. created anything. It's that he forced a conversation. Yeah, um, he, had, he had no say in, as far as I can tell, we actually have... Not, transcripts not wouldn't be the exact word. We have records of what took place at Nicaea. Um, so we, we know what was being discussed, how it was being discussed. At Council of Nicaea, we did not put together the New Testament and the Old Testament and gathered them together as the canonical books and said, it's these and no others that did not happen at Nicaea. The Trinity wasn't invented at Nicaea. Uh, uh, and, and Constantine had no authority over the meeting that took place. It was like, this is the decision we've come to. And then it was submitted to Constantine. So um, again, as you, as you go through church history, I think you'll learn that there's nothing that happened at Nicaea that was unique or unheard of in church history or in Holy Scripture. Um, my, my kids yeah, have so this one memorized, but it's basically just Father, Son, the work of Son and Redemption, the Holy Spirit's work, the coming again and judgment to judge the living and the dead. So it really is just fu the formulation of the what's going. And I see at the end, right. it does say the, the Holy Spirit and judgment of living and the dead. It does talk about baptism and salvation, um, you know, and, and the judgment of the living and the dead. It's it's the essential Christian faith. That's right. But there's also that's right, I, and I and it spends. Okay. I was going to say it spends more time just because of the the historical context of. Arianism and defining who Jesus is. So, so there's the Trinitarian aspect of Father, like I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. And then it also refers to the Holy Spirit as the Lord and giver of life. So it refers to all three persons, the Godhead, as, uh, as deity. Uh, but then really spells out Jesus as being the only begotten Son of God. And it says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Like it really spells this out. So, uh, so again, there's a historical context. Uh, Miller, do you have one more thing you wanted you wanted to say on this before we move on to the oh, next stage? I just would I would recommend a uh, resource called "The Heresy of Orthodoxy" by Andreas Kostenberger. Uh, he Dalsiel. Theological seminary professor, I'm pretty sure, but he wrote this in response to Bart Ehrman's uh, attempt to say that there was multiple Christian faiths um, in that time period, and that's just not—it's just simply not true. Uh, and that Agreed. has been uh, incredibly well proven by this. Now there were splinter heretical factions that came about, but those were by and large the minority. The only one that was highly, highly debated was Arianism, which this council took care of. Yeah, and I, my last thing on this before we move on to the Council of Ephesus is the the Nicene Creed. You don't have to be able to articulate the Nicene Creed perfectly to be a Christian, but if there's something in the Nicene Creed that you deny, you are not a Christian, right? So uh, there are children, there are people who've been in our churches that haven't really studied deeply, and they have true, meaningful faith in Jesus, 
and they would maybe stumble over their articulation of the Trinity or the articulation of Jesus's hum, human and divine nature. Um, they, they would they would have a hard time maybe articulating these things. That doesn't make them not Christian. But if you blatantly deny, no, Jesus is not God. You you deny that you are not Christian. If you deny baptism, you are not Christian. If you deny the Holy Spirit is God, you are not Christian. So the the historic Christian faith is defined by Nicaea. You might not be able to articulate it perfectly. You can still be a Christian. But if you deny what is true, you are not a Christian. So the very first, if you will, denomination is really just drawing a borderline on around what is Christian and what is not Christian. So the whole united, and this is what the creed says, apostolic church. Rome, uh, it says the, the Catholic, meaning universal, and apostolic church. What we've all believed, um, that's stated there in Nicaea. But then the, the next split takes place at Ephesus. Michael, do you want to you pick up from there? Yeah, sure. So in Ephesus, man, I just lost my note here. Uh, I can pull oh, well, I'll go from memory. Uh, Ephesus 431, it was the third ecumenical council. And what they did is they reaffirmed the, uh, the Nicene Creed was one of the things they did. And then uh, the other thing that they did, and this was the real big thing from, uh, from the uh, third, this third ecumenical council that took place in Ephesus, and, uh, and what, what they did was they confronted what became labeled the heresy of Nestorianism. And Nestorianism, what we did actually a recent show on this. So there, uh, Nestorius was the, uh, the bishop of Constantinople. And he, along with Cyril of Jerusalem, got into this uh, batting of heads over the issue of Christ's nature. And, uh, and so Cyril wanted to say, along with Orthodox Christianity and what we believe for 2,000 years, that, uh, that Jesus is God uh, and he is the God-man, one God who exists in two persons. And, uh, and one of the big sort of battlegrounds on this was, could you refer to, G uh, to Jesus' mother Mary as Theotokos, the mother of God? And, uh, and Cyril says, of course you can, because Jesus is God. In the totality of his person, he is God. He is the God-man. Nestorius felt comfortable referring to Mary as the Christ-bearer, but not the God-bearer. Uh, and the reason is that he wanted to create a sharper distinction between uh, the, the div uh, divinity and humanity of Christ as though you couldn't properly call Jesus God, that there was sort of like a God part with a human part sort of attached on. Nestorianism is, is almost like it's kind of hard to understand and articulate. I encourage you to go back and, uh, and to listen to our uh, recent episode on, uh, with Hunter Heinzman. And we talk about this, but, uh, anyway, but, but he tried to create this sharper distinction where you had, uh, where he just did not feel comfortable calling Jesus God. And so the council of Ephesus comes in in 431 and says, that's a heresy. We need to be able to unequivocally worship the, the whole person of Christ, not just say, uh, the divine part of Jesus. We need to worship Jesus. And so that's that's what uh, the council in Ephesus yeah. is really about. I got, I've got two in questions on this. Go ahead. I'm just, well, I'm just kind of curious. What is the polemical reason behind this? Like, I can understand him trying to get there using scripture, proof texting, whatever. But but why would that be such an important distinction for him? Why why fight for that? 
Oh, what's the uh, the thing he's trying to? Usually, when people are, are fighting or, or presenting some sort of heretical doctrine, there's something they're they're trying to do. Either you know, get Jesus off the hook for something, or God off the hook for something, or uh, or create something. I don't know. What's the concern there for them? Why? why he was, go that he was far? worried about a human receiving worship. He was worried about a human dying. Mm-hmm. He was worried mm-hmm. about a human eating. Or about God, God doesn't dying. need to yeah. be sustained. God doesn't need to die. God doesn't need. So if if Jesus is God, the, his articulation was basically there is these two persons, the human Jesus and the God Jesus. And the son, or maybe I should say the son, maybe that'd be more artic- accurate. The son kind of overshadows, meat puppet possesses the human Jesus. So the human Jesus still needs to eat. He, he still, he dies on the cross. He um, he he is sustained by other natural things, but that's not the God part of him. So he really makes two persons attached together. Whereas the Christian mm-hmm. faith says we have one person um, that has hypostatically united uh, both human and divine. So we can say that Jesus is one person, and he has a human nature, and he has a divine nature. Uh, and 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 we don't want to say there's two persons to separate them in such a way. So when I say I'm worshiping God, I'm worshiping the God the Son, not Jesus, the human body. Um, He has a problem with humans receiving worship, with humans being corruptible, or I say with humans, with God being, you know, corruptible, with God dying on the cross, those kinds of things. So he's he's trying to to protect immutability, um, that God doesn't change, that God can't suffer, those kinds of things. So it's started, I say, well, um, like he has good desire, he just took it to the wrong conclusion. And, And his opponent also believed in immutability, but takes it to another conclusion. Today, there is a group of Christians who still hold this position. So after Ephesus in 431, they say, hey, we deny this Christian doctrine. We're going to say this is where that border is. And then we have what is now called the Assyrian Church of the East. They have about 400,000 members. So they still exist. They're not like, they're not nowhere. They're not invisible. They still exist. They still worship, but they deny uh, that that Jesus is uh, one person, fully God, fully man, they would articulate it in such a way where you have a human person and a divine person that are somehow, you know, stapled together. And then, again, that's a bad articulation, but it's it's pretty close. So uh, we start with 325, Council of Nicaea. We have Ephesus in 341. And then after that, we have Chalcedon uh, in 451. Now, Chalcedon is trying to, again, really articulate the hypostatic union in a very intentional way, fully divine, fully human. They're trying to avoid any kind of over-realized canonic theory that says that Jesus gave up his divinity when he was incarnate. He's truly, truly human. And one of the things that they are arguing against is what's called miaphysitism, and I have a hard time pronouncing that, M-I-A-P-H-Y-S-I-T-I-S-M, pretty darn close. Uh, The Christological doctrine that holds that Jesus, the incarnate word, is fully divine and fully human in one nature. We say it's one God, two natures, one person, two natures, not one, uh, not, what is it? I'm going to, I'm going to get it all screwed up and I'm going to get, I'm going to call it. Second person of the Trinity. Yes. One person, two natures. Jesus is one person, two natures, human and divine. Their position is saying that there's one nature, uh, human and divine somehow get mixed together. And they were trying to refrain and resist that Christian doctrine that took place at Chalcedon in 451. Uh, any thoughts, comments? Y'all want to add on that? Yeah. Uh, sure. This, I mean, 
the Coptic, uh, Coptic Christians, like in Egypt, Northern Africa, they're a part of this Syrian Orthodox, the Armenian Apostolic Church. Now, according to my understanding, I, I don't think that was labeled, or at least not today, I don't think it's labeled heresy, um, but I think that it's just labeled maybe aberrant a little bit. Like it's a, it's a little off. So they say natures, we say person and two natures. Um, Josh, is that your understanding or did you understand it as a it's heresy? A, I, I've read, but deal. like, I do not, I honestly don't feel comfortable calling Coptic Christians heretics. Like I, yeah, it's uh, a, like think it's of a the, big deal. the ones in orange jumpsuits who, the ones in orange jumpsuits who like kneeled on the beach, uh, while mm -hmm. dying for their faith, you know? Yes, who, whichever Muslim yes. group it was, ISIS, uh, you know, chopped off their heads. Like those dudes were like dying for their faith in Jesus. Um, their articulation, I don't think it's not quite right, but you know, I it's not it's nothing like Arianism. It's not like Nestorianism. That 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 both of those Arianism is the worst of those. Nestorianism second worst, and then Maya Faisitism. I might be saying that wrong too. No. Is, third worst I, i'm what ranking think of kenosis which this sort of okay. settles which is a modern day heresy well i'd say a lot of charismatics are accused of this very heresy uh, or this uh, if it's true belief system yeah well there is the kenotic heresy and that word kenosis coming from the greek word for emptied in philippians 2 where jesus emptied himself uh, and made himself, uh, you know, took the form of a servant, made himself obedient, uh, even unto death, even death on a cross. Uh, that, that whole section, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. If somebody says that Jesus emptied himself of his deity and for 33 years was 100% a man, but not, but 0% God in those 33 years, but then somehow became God again, any articulation that suggests he lays aside his divinity in terms of his essence and being, that's heresy. Uh, there's what's called a functional kenosis, which is more like, oh, he, he remained the, the God-man in his entirety during his earthly life, uh, so he never ceased to be God. He just didn't exercise his divine prerogatives and privileges. Uh, that is not heresy. I, I would personally articulate it a little differently than that, but uh, that's not heresy. But either way, the Council of Chalcedon does, uh, it does speak into uh, kenosis, speaks into myophysitism, uh, and Nestorianism as well, and it tries to articulate. Uh, I, I have it pulled up. I can read a little bit of the, the Chalcedonian Creed. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's it says that we confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. So you see how it's trying to preserve these two na two natures, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, uh, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead. Uh, so of the same substance as the Father, and yet consubstantial with us according to manhood. In all things like unto us, without sin. So he's very, he's human in every way, but just, but sinless begotten before all ages of the father, according to the Godhead. So eternally generated, he is eternal. He is God, but he proceeds from the father in the latter days for us and our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, etc. And so it speaks of his manhood and, and it goes on, but you can see there's a strong emphasis on what we call the hypostatic union, the unity of the two natures within the one person of Jesus. So Basically, in this sort of 200-year span of history, 
where these councils are uh, and creeds are councils are meeting and creeds being formulated. Uh, it's really very much it's on the Trinity and it's on the person of Jesus. That's what a lot of these battles were about. And I'd like so to bring us into the the oh, church. Yeah, because you'd, you'd ask me, hey, you know, do you think that they are Christian? And, and as we understand, we have the East, the West, and the Oriental. So if you're going to be part of the Western church, I think this is where the first marker comes. If you're going to be a Western Christian, which would be Roman Catholic and all Protestants hail from the West. So if you're in one of those traditions, this is the Western tradition. If you don't hold to the West and at 451 at the, the Council of uh, what Chalcedon, or it's not a council, it's technically the Chalcedonian definition. So it's not necessarily a creed. I guess it is a council, but it's a Chalcedonian definition. At that point, at 451, you did have the East that spun off. So most Protestants, and I would say most, basically only the ones that, are, that aren't ignorant, all hold to Chalcedon. But this is where we see our first church split, if you will, uh, as you have the Oriental Church, the Coptic, the Syriac, the Armenian Apostolic. I do actually have a graphic here that kind of maybe illustrates this. Um, I have it right here. Let me pull it up. Boom. So you see the Catholic Church. That's the universal church at 325. There on the right, you'll see the Oriental Church, Coptic, Syriac, Orthodox, Armenian, West right there in the center. And then over on the East, we'll see that they split in 1054. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But that kind of gives you a visual illustration to say we still consider them Christian, we still consider them within the umbrella of what it is to be Christian because they affirm Nicaea. But you also have to realize that one of the reasons that the, the Syrian, the Coptic, and the Apostolic Armenian churches didn't agree to attending this council partially had to do with economics. I mean, they mm-hmm. weren't living large down there in, the, the, in Egypt. They weren't living large in their, their region of the earth. And the idea to gather up for another council, they're like, guys, we settled what all Christians believe at Nicaea. Why are you pulling on us to go up there again? Like there was some political and economical things because politically they're all like, hey, we're all meeting here. And they're like, it takes too long to get up there. We're not interested. And and they did. They did have a theological difference, but also they just there was other things that kind of affected that gathering. So we do affirm them as Christian brothers, um, but they are considered the Oriental Church rather than the Western Church or the Eastern Church. Hope that makes sense. You guys want to pick up on the next totally. one? Absolutely. Yeah. I, go ahead, Miller. No, no, I think I'm good. Sorry. You go ahead. Okay, sure. Yeah. So uh, then then we have, uh, in the 5th century, we have the establishment of what's called the Pentarchy. So Pent means five, like pentagram. And it spoke of five cities. And there were five cities that uh, that seemed to be like major hubs for uh, for Christians. And the bishops of those cities became a big deal. Okay, so you had Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Now, Antioch, uh, Alexandria, Jerusalem, uh, those were all three eventually Muslim-controlled. So that affected things. Uh, but this is actually going to set us up for and uh, this is going to set us up for the Great Schism, like the big, big split. Not just like, hey, there's a little tiny offshoot over here, but the massive schism between East and West that takes place in 1054. And uh, uh, on the surface, it's always argued like, hey, this Great Schism happened because of the Filioque Clause, where 
you know, it was said, you know, the the West says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and the East says, no, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, uh, because we have that literal language in the Scripture that, where the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and we're not going to get into the debate of who's right and who's wrong on that. Um, we've, we have our opinions, and we're Western. So um, anyway, but the... The point of this uh, patriot, uh, this pentarchy, is that it, it was a setup because uh, for the future split, because what happened was Rome spoke Latin and it was way far west relative to the others, and then the others, the other four cities were all east, and even this, uh, in fact, it's funny in Protestant denominations we have a saying on an elder board sometimes where we say, oh well, that's you know the senior pastor, he's the first among equals. Uh, that's actually rooted in this. It's rooted in the Pentarchy because Rome was considered the first among equals. And uh, and so, yeah, back then, yeah. So it, <laughs> of these five cities, each of them, there was a bishop over each city. And so the bishop of Rome was considered first among these other equal bishops. And together, these five were sort of, were sort of like the leaders of Christianity in that day. And that's going to give way to a split where these four culturally greek culturally different they they're going to ultimately form the eastern church on the surface it was a split over the uh the filioque clause uh, over from whom does the holy spirit proceed uh but but there was some sort of political and kind of bigger power dimensions that were also at play here and so this is all just kind of setting the scene for that yeah and josh do you have anything to add to that like you mentioned alexandria antioch jerusalem had all been under Muslim control. So part of that means that Christianity didn't spread a ton because people were getting martyred, but it was also saying that that there was not as much expansion because people already had established religious beliefs. Um, Constantinople and Rome really were the primary ones with with the mass influence. They had lots of people that were atten- you know attending, right? So if you're like judging on influence by number, the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople have the largest following. Whereas Alexander, Antioch, and Jerusalem, though they were part of the Pentarchy, they had a much smaller following in comparison to the larger two. And because of the continual separation of language, it caused further dramatic splits between the two. They were talking about things different. They were using theological language different. Uh, in, in, for example, um, the, the Western tradition, Rome, uh, would begin to articulate theology in what was called uh, apophatic theology, may, may, meaning that they would make pro-statements about God. God is love. God is truth. God is light. They were trying to define who God was, whereas the Eastern tradition, uh, as Constantinople, would say, hey, we're going to define God in apophatic, cataphatic, apophatic theology. Apophatic theology suggests that you can't define God by who he is. You have to define God by what he's not. Okay, so God is not a liar, right? There is no darkness in God. And I want to say that God is truth, but it's only my perception of truth because every version of truth I have is a human version of truth. You know, if I say God is love, what does that mean to you? Uh, because because we have a form of love that's not God's love. God's love is infinitely more superior than our love, and it's uncomprehendable. His love is so great. So how could I define that? I can't really define it. I can say that it's love, but then I want to say what it's not. His love is 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 not um um what's the word is, is lo- what's the opposite of patient right uh it's not uh i don't know to say jealous because god's Impatient. love is jealous anyway i'm doing a hard job a horrible job of articulating all of this uh, but but the idea is that the east and the west their theologies begin to branch in a way that makes it difficult to communicate 
their political uh, standing makes it difficult to cooperate. And, and even also just regionally, they're in very different places. So uh, there was a loss of influence that happened in Alexandria because of, uh, like, like we said, because of um, uh, Muslim rule and takeover. So the main, uh, main influence came from Rome and Constantinople, language barriers, political divides. Um, and there was finally the Pope's grab for authority. And I, you mentioned this already, uh, Michael. Um, uh, the Pope claims, hey, I'm the first among equal. He, he begins to appeal to what is called apostolic succession, saying, I get my apostolic succession from Peter. That's what makes me first among you guys. I'm better than all of you because someone Peter laid his hands on someone, and they laid their hands on someone, and they laid their hands on someone, and they laid their hands on someone, and then they laid their hands on me. So I'm important because I come straight from Peter, and Peter's the rock. So they claimed Ooh. a form of authority to change the Nicene Creed. And the church was like, whoa, we all agreed on that. The Nicene Creed says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And you're adding the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son? How dare you? Um, and to define all this, if you want a like really heady articulation of the Filioque Clause, you need to go watch um, Dr. Jordan Cooper's articulation of this. I mean, you cannot listen to this video without a pen and paper and studying because if you're just like listening it to in the car, personal experience I'm sharing with you, uh, you will get lost. You really need to like sit down and follow. It's very complex. But I do agree the filial clause is biblical, but the question is, did he have the authority to add it? That's an entirely different question. Yeah, and it's that's, really so that's my thing. <laughs> that was my thing with it because uh, I, I, to me, it's quite clear. I mean, John 14 says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Uh, but the whole... The whole book of Acts shows that Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes and, forth from Jesus. I mean, it's like every chapter, it seems like. So, uh, and so you have both. The Holy Spirit is from both. And so I'm comfortable with that language of proceeds. But man, I don't like, at least from what I've read of history, it does feel like the Pope pulled a power play on this and said, first among equals means I get to outvote four other bishops. I don't think that's what first among equals means. That just means first. So, yeah. uh, so I don't, well, there's, I don't, there's like no it, such guys. thing as first among equals when it boils down to it. At the end of the day, a first among equals means a first. It means that there's above. a second. No matter what. Third. <laughs> and I, Josh, when you mentioned, um, the apostolic succession, now people would define that very differently, and so I think it's probably important to mention that there's a Catholic definition of this, which is what allowed the Pope or the Roman bishop to become Pope, versus what uh, I would say Anglicans probably how they would define it. Isn't isn't there a difference in definition there? I don't know that there is, honestly. Um, I think that they would acknowledge any bishop that laid their hands on any bishop would qualify as apostolic succession. I think the Pope is appealing to the highest level of authority because it came from Peter, and he is the archbishop of over all bishops. So that's really the only difference in articulation, I think. Well, I, I, I thought that the ap, uh, apostolic succession meant that people, there, is a, there has been a succession of people being ordained from the very beginning, as opposed yeah. to somebody just ordaining themselves, right? Saying, oh, I'm going to go start Correct. my own church. Uh, and then the Roman Catholic view of it would be um, there's an apostolic secession for popes, main leaders, first among equals. So that slight distinction, because I mean, both both hmm. claim, both sides would claim apostolic secession, but Rome would claim not really apostolic secession, but pope succession. 
I'll be honest, I could not give you a clear um, definition on the two off the cuff right now. Um, but to go back to maybe this graphic from earlier that we just looked at, this is what causes the split in 1054. By 1054, the East goes, no, we're out. Uh, and this is the Bulgarian Orthodox, the Greek or Orthodox, the Siberian Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Romanian Orthodox, huge, the Albanian Orthodox, amount. the Polish Orthodox, the you know the Macedonian Orthodox, and the but it's uh, it's always Bulgarian right, it's Orthodox. Regional. A ton of Christians are Eastern Orthodox. So many of us in the West have a hard time grasping. Okay, if you're not Protestant, then you're Catholic, and it's like no, actually, yeah, actually, what makes us Protestant is frankly what half of the church in the world is fighting against. They're protesting the overreach of authority and the claims that aren't biblical. Now, I'm not saying that all of the Eastern Orthodox traditions are Protestant. I'm not saying that they have they hold to our same values or, for example, the Filioque. They just picked a fight sooner. Too. They picked a sooner fight. They okay. said, hey, you don't have yeah. authority to do this. Um, anyway, so that that split is to say that there's a ton of Christians out there who look like Rome, and this is really important for Protestants to get. They don't have smoke screens. They don't have, you know, televisions and lights in their churches. Like, they don't have hip, cool photos of people raising hands during worship, right? They don't have those things, and they're not Roman Catholic, right? So <laughs> all the time, we'll they, have an angle they, show up with they a collar. Seem, or, yeah, they, they, they look like they the same dress. They seem very Catholic-like, yeah, but they're not. Uh, they don't have a pope. They do have a patriarch, um, but or well, well technically many of them do have they popes. Don't. Yeah, cuz many of them call uh, them father. The word pope just means father. Well, so pope means in fact father. in the pentarchy right. well, many yeah. of them were called father. Yeah. But again, it's a different right, definition. They, right. Right. Cool. So let's let's move on. So there's a split in 1054. <laughs> the east, the the west and the oriental are defined. They're within With that. The oriental being super say, small relative to the other two. Correct. The Oriental being most people will just say it's the yeah most people will say it's it's the East and the West with a little sliver of Oriental yeah okay <laughs> but then we get to the Protestant Reformation this is the one Miller knows a few things about Miller well, I was going to say up until this point <laughs> it's important to say that the Roman Catholics aren't like this giant because there is an articulation of Roman Catholicism that's like we all agree on everything. You know, we, we infallibly interpret these things and we just agree, you know, wh why be a Protestant? You know, you can all just determine what you want by your own reason and logic. But us, 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 us Catholics, we, we're all told what the historic faith is. We all agree on it. That's just a load of garbage. Do any research on Roman Catholicism within them. They have Carmelite orders. They have Jesuit orders. They have like all these different groups within Roman Catholicism that disagree on everything. I mean, you even have today Vatican I Catholics and Vatican II Catholics and this idea that because you're Roman Catholic means you agree on every Roman Catholic doctrine is just not true. Um, and so, so though they didn't split and still identify as Rome, there's a lot of variety of theology within Roman Catholicism. That's probably important to say leading up to the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, because people, when they look at the Protestant Reformation, they think, well, this was obviously a, a gigantic blunder because it disunited the church. But the fact is, the church was disunited long before that, from the day that Rome overreached its authority. And then right. Uh, right. you have people then splintering from that because they're still overreaching their authority in the 1500s. Right. Well, and to me, I don't see different denominations as a problem. I mean, it, it can be, it can be over the top. Like 
uh, uh, sometimes, but I, I don't think by and large that it is, uh, you know, if somebody, uh, if somebody views some tertiary doctrine a little bit differently than I do, and then, and uh, I mean, as long as we're worshiping the same Lord and the same Christ, uh, I, I'm fine with somebody else having a different expression in their worship service, for instance, like we're, we're just different. We're different and that's okay. Um, so I, I don't have as huge of a problem with it. I don't feel like, I, I think what I'm trying to say is there's a difference between unity and uniformity. And uh, unity, it comes from, well, uh, we are all baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ, uh, but then we maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And so unity is, uh, it's a relational word. It is, uh, if we're all setting our hearts and our minds upon the same Christ and worshiping him, you can be a Baptist and I can be a charismatic and we are one in Christ, even if we view a few things differently. Um, well, the, but let's jump the, into the Protestant Reformation. New, let me, let me comment real quickly okay. on that, Michael, because this isn't a new issue that's, uh, that suddenly crops up during the Protestant Reformation. You've got these kind of, uh, factions breaking off very, very early in the church and not in the sense that they dis, uh, they, they disfellowship from one another, but that there are, uh, cultural differences that, that could not, uh, be uniformed. And you see this in Rome. Um, and there's a reason why Paul writes this letter to them because you've got, you know, Jews coming back into Rome after having, you know, been been cast out, and they're trying to figure out what do we do with the Gentile churches, largely Gentile and Greek, and they're not keeping kosher, they're not used to our customs. And then you've got the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 where the same kind of thing is going on. They're saying all these Gentiles are coming into the faith. We we can't put a burden on them that even our forefathers couldn't bear. And so we see this uh, this breakdown in uniformity real early on, and that seems to be acceptable and and continues throughout history, culturally speaking. So now, pause. you were watching the things I'll have to edit out from this video. I accidentally pushed a button. Back to you, Michael. <laughs> Let's do Reformation. So, Protestant Reformation, fifteen seventeen. Uh, really, you have some leadage to the Protestant Reformation. It's not, it's not just like Martin Luther showed up and, and, uh, and everything started with him. Uh, you have what you might call proto-Protestants. You had the, uh, the, Walden, uh, the Waldenesians, Peter Waldo, uh, in uh, really actually around the time of, uh, of the Great Schism. Uh, was beginning to say like, hey, anyone can preach. You don't have to have like these uh, all, all these special uh, authorizations to be able to preach. Then you had uh, Jan Hus uh, or John Hus, uh, depending on your kind of translation and rendering there. But uh, anyway, he he was really big on let's go back to the scriptures over this like where tradition contradicts the scripture. Let's go with the scripture. That sounds very Protestant, very sola scriptura. That was around the 14th century. And, Do you know why those uh, didn't become then, dominations? They killed that? them. The reason they oh, yeah, didn't become yeah. dominations, and yeah. they were all put to the sword. It's like, why, wait, That's why right, was right. there a split that waited till you know the 1500s for the Protestants? It's because you killed everybody that disagreed with you. Sorry. Yeah, you know what? That's actually maybe a solution to our uh, our many denominations, Josh. Josh, let's just uh, let's just kill everyone. Who disagrees? Wow. I'm pulling that in the uh, edit because YouTube is yeah. not going to like that phrase. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, just kidding, YouTube. All I right, digress. So, um, yeah. So Luther comes onto the scene. He start. Uh, you know, at first he nails his ninety-five theses. He just wants a, a good scholarly debate over indulgences. Suddenly feels so great about indulgences, and uh, this blows up and and becomes a big thing ultimately into the Protestant Reformation and. Uh, and, and there are other things besides indulgences and, and the Protestant Reformation uh, ends up having the five solas. And you have uh, sola meaning only sola scriptura for only the scripture, sola gratia for sola gra uh, only grace and uh, uh, sola fide. Sola fide. Uh, so faith alone, um, sola, sola gloria, only glory to God. Which one did I miss, guys? Sola Sola Scriptura, guys, sola, it's the five so, solas. So, yeah, it goes, it goes, I can't uh, remember which fide, one I didn't sola say. Sola Gratia, Sola Scriptura, Sola Dea Gloria, and Sola Christus. Ah, for Christ alone. Uh, yeah, there you go. I'm Protestant. Yeah, Sola I bleed it. Sola Christus. I'm, that's I'm the, the whitest yeah. Protestant white boy. That's me. Yeah, but yeah the, we should probably so, mention that the, the Luther was not the only one to reform in this. There were several uh, movements that reformed. Uh, so the Anglicans, uh, Anabaptists, the Reformed, and then Lutheran, all of them splinter out of Catholicism, uh, and all of them would claim Reformation. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe we can even begin breaking down the different branches. Lutheranism, Josh is like a closet Lutheran, but he doesn't okay. believe in baptismal regeneration, so he doesn't go all the way into Lutheranism. But uh, anyway, so you have various churches within Lutheranism. And uh, the Lutheran State Church uh, in Germany in 1520, uh, the OG. Then the, uh, you had a, Den, uh, a, a Denmark ver a version from Denmark, from Norway, from Sweden around the 1530s. Uh, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was formed in 1847. The Evangel Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, 1967, which split with Missouri because the, e <laughs> the ELCA uh, they felt was not so great. But anyway, you have these various uh, various branches. All of these are within Lutheranism. Uh, but then on the other side, you have, and you can see this in the chart, you have the Reformed uh, uh, and the and the Anglican breaking down into various branches. You guys want to speak into those, uh, either one of those a little bit? I know that well, the Anglican group still believes in, uh, which I said earlier, uh, apostolic secession. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so of of the groups that are listed there, the, those uh, articulations of today we get. So, from at ten uh, fifteen thirty four, Anglican Church is established, and and in the Anglican tradition today, you have Anglo Catholics, Evangelical Anglicans, and more liberal Anglicans. So, you'll find like the Episcopal Church would fit under that kind of liberal Anglican category, as in they're really affirming of modern day sins that uh, the historic church would deny. You have those who are Anglo-Catholic, who are Anglican because they belong to the Church of England, but really, they're really jonesing for the good old days where they can sit under a pope. Um, and they love praying to Mary and that kind of thing. And then you've got these evangelical Anglicans who basically have all the liturgy, but they would affirm everything, or for the most part, everything that, that Protestant reformers would believe. Now, over on the other side, you'll see like around the 1930s, you'd see the reform tradition, the Dutch reform, the Huguenots, the Presbyterians, and the Puritans kind of come out of the reform tradition. Now, one of those is really hard to spot. I don't know if you can tell that Presbyterian one. That's a difficult category um, for us to place because in some sense, they kind of hang out in the Reformed branch. But then in another sense, they kind of hang out in the Anglican branch because the, the Presbyterians hold to the Westminster Confession. 
that confession was written by the Anglican Church. So it's kind of a hard place to put them in the category. Do you put them over with the Baptists and the Puritans, or do you put them over with the Anglicans? So for the sake of that chart, I put them over there. Um, but that kind of gives you a general idea of when the Protestant Reformation happens, the initial splits go into uh, the Reformed tradition. That's where most of evangelicalism finds its roots in the Reformed tradition. Um, then you have the uh, Anglicans, uh, and then the, uh, there in the center, uh, shoot, I forget what the other, uh, oh, Lutherans. Um, Lutherans are not Anglicans by any stretch, and Lutherans are not Reformed by any stretch. Most Lutherans hold to a different soteriological system as the Reformed theology. Um, they would affirm baptismal regeneration like some of the Anglicans would, um, but they would also, uh, you know, kind of side with Calvin, side with Arminian on different uh, soteriological issues that is not necessary to get into here. Well, but there are distinct differences between all three of those movements, and from those movements, we get all of our modern-day denominations. Yeah, and, We also mentioned and Anabaptist, and one of the big distinctions for them was that they did adult baptism, whereas Lutherans were still baptizing babies, right? So that that is, they became, the Anabaptists became the most disdained because of adult baptism. Has that changed within Lutheranism today, Josh? Within Lutheranism, do we do we not baptize babies? Is that what you're asking? No, I said within Lutheranism, do they still, uh, well, I know there was a great dis deal of disdain from both Catholics and Lutherans for the Anabaptists because they were baptizing adults. Does that disdain still exist? Do they still look at it and go, uh, how could you baptize adults? I think that's changed, hasn't it? Lutheranism, within Lutherans, they would still well, baptize adults. I, I would say, well, to be Lutherans fair, Lutherans would always I, baptize even adults. Lutherans and everyone yeah. else would have baptized adults if the adult got saved and had never been infant baptized. So right. the thing was with the Anabaptists was that they didn't do infant baptism and solely did credo baptism, right? So, gotcha. Uh, but I think that's kind of what you were trying to say there. So, so they, the Lutherans could be just as disdainful as the modern-day Baptists as they were the Anabaptists. Yes. You, yes. You're saying I that suppose, with such I a suppose. wry smile. Uh, <laughs> just being, so here's, yeah. Let's look at the family tree of like Anglicans, okay? So I, I mentioned the all of the denominations today come out of those three branches of Lutheranism, Anglicanism, and the Protestant Reformation. So what you have and after the Anglican reformed, tradition yeah. is established, you have, that's right, Reformed. Uh, after the Anglican uh, tradition is established, you have these three forms of Anglicanism, this Anglican family tree, if you will. So the Episcopal Church was established in 1785 by the Anglicans. Why was it named Episcopal? Well, it was planted in America, and apparently Church of Anglican Church of England or Anglican doesn't ring real well with the nationalist spirit of America. So they rebranded <laughs> and decided we're going to call it Episcopal. Uh, then you have uh, different uh, Anglican, the Anglican Church of South Africa, the Anglican Church of Canada, the Anglican Church of Australia. You see that those nations don't have the kind of national pride that Americans <laughs> do. They're perfectly fine being called Anglican. Yeah. And then you have the Church of Uganda and the Church of Nigeria. Now, over there, you have the Presbyterians in 1707, again, coming from the Westminster Confession. You have the PCA, the Cumberland Presbyterians, the Presbyterian Church USA, P, I'm sorry, RPCNA, which is fun to say, and uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance. So if you're familiar with the Christian Missionary Alliance, A.B. Simpson was in uh, as was a Presbyterian, but he got ghosty. So uh, that's where you get the Christian Missionary Alliance, A.W. Tozer, those guys. And then over on the other side, 19 or sorry, 1790s is where you get the Methodist movement. Uh, the 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 Methodist uh, the Wesley brothers who started the Methodist movement were Anglicans till the day they died. 
uh, but their 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 polity, the way that they established churches in the West, really changed pretty strongly from the Anglican tradition. I say strongly, maybe not too strong. A lot of the liturgy is still there. So the United Methodist Church, the Global Methodist Church, and frankly, a lot of Pentecostalism comes from that holiness Western Methodist tradition. So that kind of gives you, okay, I'm beginning to see why there are different denominations. Some of them have to do with cultural barriers. Some of them have to do with theological differences. But you'll begin to see how if you understand the Protestant Reformation and the three major branches, you can begin to follow the various denominations that come forward from it. Um, do you guys want to weigh in on any of that up until this point? Oh, I think... Um, yeah, so I mean, Anglicanism, Meth uh, the Methodist denomination, all, all of these highly related. But I, I think the big thing is just church governance, is uh, that it's Episcopal. And so you have an archbishop, you have bishop, or you have archbishops, you have bishops, you have um, rectors. And so, uh, whereas in Presbyterian, you you have elders, but then you have like, uh, you have people above that uh, within the eldership, but it's it's not like a bishop, uh, like it is in the Episcopal Church. And, and then you have congregationalist, which is more like run, which that would like you're not going to find Anglican Congregationalist churches. Uh, you're not going to find Lutheran. Con uh, would you find Lutheran Congregationalist churches? No. I don't think no, you Lutherans, would. No. Lutherans have bishops. So like you're, you're saying Presbyterians have a plurality, even at their kind of district level. Once you get out of the local church, the there's general even a plurality assembly. of elders there. They're, they have a general assembly of elders that gather together mm -hmm. to make those decisions. So uh, Lutherans... Anglicans, they all, and even Methodists, have like a bishop system where there are people over them that are making executive calls that all the local churches have to follow. Um, whereas Congregationalism right. is a root of like Puritan tradition. So let's look at the Radical Reformation family tree. That'll kind of give you an understanding of that. So out of the Radical Reformation around 1517, you have these Anabaptists that emerge that Michael Miller was talking about. The Radical Reformation that goes, hey guys, we're only doing, and this is crazy, they're the radical ones. They're the ones that are saying, we are the only ones that will do believer's baptism, which means babies, they don't believe, they haven't given a profession, they don't get baptized. And from amen. the Anabaptist tradition, uh, amen, right? We get the Pietists, we get the Quakers, and we get the Anabaptists. So in the Anabaptist tradition, 1527, the, the, the Pietists, 1700, and the 1650s, you get the Quakers. So you'll have all of these different churches, you know, Amish, Mennonite come from Anabaptist, Church of the Brethren, the River, the, the River Brethren, that's a denomination apparently, Evangelical Covenant Church, Evangelical Free Church of America, all in the Pietist movement. And then the Quakers, you know, the earliest Pentecostals. Uh, they yeah, had the it's religious the Society of Friends. Yeah, they, they were the shakers. Shakes. They got the shakes. Yeah, yeah but you know what? You game. know what the Quakers didn't do? which I hate well, about, I hate this, they didn't do communion because Ooh. they were anti-anything anti ritualistic. So right. tradition, bad. Uh, of course, they were in favor of the tradition of gathering on the Lord's Day. So I don't know why they made such a, a fuss about communion. Now, there was another little element to communion, and that the, that is that they were teetotalers, so they didn't drink wine. Of course, the, the Southern Baptists found a way around that one. You just do Welch's. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but the Quakers did not do communion, but they uh, but they still fit within that branch that you were showing. If you put that back on the screen, Josh, of 
uh, of the Anabaptist uh, tradition. So, uh, so the Anabaptist tradition breaking down into just the straight Anabaptists and then the Pietists and then the Quakers. Um, so uh, there you have it. You got the Anabaptists, you got the Reformed, you've got the Lutheran and the Anglicans. Those are the four big branches with Anabaptists being sort of like, it's, it's not that big. It's really like the big three, Lutheran, Reformed, and Anglican. They're much with, smaller. Uh, with this little little offshoot here of Anabaptist. Do you guys want to follow uh, through? I mean, it's it's 56. We have two more slides, one on the Reformed tradition and then another sure. one on uh, the Pentecostal tradition. So in do the Reformed it. tradition, whoop, let's do that. Sorry, I'm messing up my slides here. I've, I've got uh, to jump out, but sorry, you guys. You'll have to finish this one without me. No worries. Blessings. Hugs and kisses, Miller. Uh, here's the uh, Reformed tradition. So you'll see the pur Puritans come out of that 1600s, uh, right around the time that the Presbyterians are kind of getting their steam in 1707. Uh, again, I put them in the Reformed tradition because they're not quite Anglican, but they are kind of Anglican. So they, they kind of fit in both categories. But then the Puritans, from the Puritan tradition, we get the particular Baptist and the general Baptist. This is what where we're going to get the uh, doctrines of, uh, well, doctrines of Calvin are really fleshed out within the Baptist traditions. So the particular Baptists are saying that Jesus died only for a particular group of people, not for the world. The general Baptists would say, okay, no, uh, Jesus died for everyone. Now, among those two groups on the Baptist side from the Puritan tradition, they were Congregationalist, as Michael mentioned earlier. Of those Congregational traditions, you'll see the Southern Baptists come out of that movement. You'll have the general Baptists come out of that movement. There's a lot of different Baptist denominations and the hill really from the Puritan side. Now, there's a bunch of uh, reformed fanatics who are going to watch this video and get really upset with that. As my recollection with history uh, and my knowledge of Puritan, I'm saying that that's where they came from. Many uh, of, the, uh, of the Baptist brothers who are super reformed will say, nope, those general Baptists have nothing to do with us. You know, uh, they, they really want to deny the fact that those kinds of Baptists came out of them when I think I think reasonably, and we have an episode on this where you can hit, uh, review the history of the Baptist church, uh, where I think that that's clear personally. Uh, the other tradition here is the Pentecostal tradition. Michael, do you want to say anything about the, um, the uh, Baptist and Puritans tradition at all before we move on? Uh, well, we could add in that the, the Southern Baptists specifically uh, became Southern Baptists over the issue of slavery. So that sure. that was a factor. Go ahead and in take there. off, everybody. How... Good job, Michael. <laughs> hey, just being honest about the history. That's that's where they came from. So not saying that Southern Baptists are in that same place today, uh, but that's where they were back then. So um, anyway, so yeah, I, that's all I would add. But uh, no, let's come back to um, what was it you were you said we were going to talk about? Oh, you wanted. Pentecostalism. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, so yeah. the Pentecostal family tree kind of looks like this. In 1904, Azusa Street revival breaks out. Uh, William Seymour was discipled by a man named Charles Parham. Disciples a loose term because William Seymour had to sit outside of the classroom because he was a black man. There it is. There's the black man thing again, Michael, uh, from the Southern Baptist yeah. that you mentioned earlier. Uh, because he was viewed negatively, uh, he was not allowed to sit into the classroom uh, because of racism and segregation. So he goes to... Um, uh, Azusa, you know, he goes to um, Chicago and he, Chicago? No, he goes to no. California. This is in California. Los Angeles. Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah, thank you. I'm, so, I'm like, why am I having a hard time pulling up the name? So he goes to uh, 214 Bonnie Bray Street 
and yep. Mr. Lee gets prayer. He gets healed. He starts, you know, bringing lots of people in. Look, I think the gifts of the Spirit are coming. And praise for people. They start speaking in tongues. And the Pentecostal movement is born. From that, you have classical Pentecostalism. Uh, from 1904, there was a group of heretics that emerged called Holiness Pentecostals or Oneness Pentecostals that would once again deny Nicaea and say uh, they would reaffirm the modalist heresy. And if you go and read Pentecostal tradition, uh, we have a guy who came on and talked about the origins of the Assemblies of God. It's actually really cool. They relived Nicaea. It was wild. Like the same arguments emerged. It was super cool. Uh, not cool that there were heretics, but cool that the Spirit led the church to truth. That's cool. So the Assemblies of God, the Church of God, the Church of God in Christ, the Foursquare Church, and the Full Gospel Church are all considered classical Pentecostals. Uh, in 1960s, we have the Word of Faith tradition. In the 1960s, uh, Josh, we also have real, the Charismatic Movement. Go ahead. That's right. Yeah, and just to kind of uh, nail down classical Pentecostals, they're going to believe that there is a subsequent experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial physical evidence uh, of speaking in tongues. Some of these denominations seem to have softened a little bit on, well, maybe not tongues, but at least prophecy or something like that. But it, at least the way it has historically been defined has been that way. Uh, but I'll, I'll go ahead and pick up where you left off and talk into the charismatic space. And so charismatics, of course, there's, there's such a thing as charismatic Catholics. We kind of left that one out of this one because there's only so much time we have to talk about things. But uh, but the Catholic, or sorry, the charismatics, a little bit different from the classical Pentecostals in that this was where the move of the Spirit started to flourish and blossom inside of mainline denominations. And uh, a prominent pastor stood up in front of his church and said, I, I speak in tongues and uh, this became a big deal. And, and so that same move of the Holy Spirit that happened, or I would say a similar move of the Spirit that happened at Azusa Street, starting with Bonnie Bray, then Azusa Street, and spread through the Pentecostal movement now starts uh, infiltrating all these mainline denominations. That becomes the charismatic movement. Josh, I don't know if you have a graphic for so-called third wave, um, I don't. but beginning with sort of... Uh, the the Jesus movement into uh, John Wimber and the uh, family of Vineyard churches. Uh, Peter Wagner called it the third wave of the Holy Spirit. The first being Pentecostal, second being Charismatic around the '60s, and then third wave kind of '70s to '80s. Uh, starting there, they did not make the sharp distinction of uh, like baptism of the Holy Spirit as a subsequent experience. They said you're baptized in the Holy Spirit at the moment that you believe. Not everybody necessarily speaks in tongues, and uh, th those are a couple of the distinctions, and there are more. And uh, and so that's the that's the charismatic movement. That's me and Josh, or sorry, not charismatic, the uh, uh, third wave movement. Uh, now sometimes uh, there's overlap in how people use these terms. Like I'm comfortable saying I'm a charis like I'm a charismatic. You could say that about me, uh, but if we wanted to be like really, really nail down a definition, it, it would more fit into the camp of third wave than, quote, charismatic. So, uh, it's Josh, that we make those distinctions uh, between the charismatic, the word of faith, and the Pentecostal, because many Pentecostals deny word of faith, many charismatics deny word of faith, uh, many word of faith guys would deny initial physical evidence. There is really a variety of beliefs and theological systems within that. So uh, we mentioned this is the family tree. Now, we didn't give you how all these family trees came about. We really wanted to start at the first top of the show and explain, you know, 
the East, the West, and the Oriental Church, the reason we spent so much time describing and articulating all of that is because that really has to do with the historic Christian faith. That's the border. That's the guardrail that we all agree to. And by articulating this is what Christians are, you can see how different Christians would disagree on different things. Some Christians go, hey, um, I want to baptize babies, and I think it saves them. Other Christians go, that doesn't save babies. Um, that only allows them to come into the covenant family. And another group of people goes, wait, no, you can't baptize babies at all because they don't believe, and you have to have believer's baptism. And others come along and say, hey, I'm glad that you have baptism, but you need baptism on the Holy Spirit. You need to speak in tongues. And other groups that say, hey, I believe in tongues and I believe in the gifts, but I don't think that's the baptism of the Spirit. And you can see how these churches begin to separate, not because they don't actually acknowledge each other as Christian brothers, because many of them, all of those that I mentioned, actually can acknowledge each other as Christian brothers but they say, well, you're going to speak in tongues, and I don't believe in that, which means you have to do church over there. We can plant, you know, water wells. We can do evangelism together. But at the end of the day, we can't really do church in the same place. You believe in lady pastors. I don't believe in lady pastors. So you should do church over there with your lady pastors, and I'll do church over here with my male pastors. You know, like, the reason people are splitting more often than not is not because they're denying the Christianity of someone else or they're claiming that the other person is damned to hell they're actually doing church in a different place because they can't agree on a subject that actually affects the work of the church. So we started talking about the big essential Christian things, and then we started talking about the family trees and how all these little denominations got to spur off. Now, we will probably do episodes in future days that really just you know dive in, and we've done some, on Wesleyanism and the history of Wesleyanism and the history of John Wesley. We'll do episodes on Baptists. We'll do episodes on Pentecostals. And again, we've done a lot of these already. We'll do episodes on Presbyterianism and the Reformed tradition. You can go back into the, the logs of Remnant Radio. You can see that we interviewed Joel Webbin on 1644, the Savoy Statement, and the 1689 London Baptist Statement. You can see that we interviewed uh, a, a pastor on the history of the Baptist Church. We interviewed, uh, shoot, uh, 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 Doug Weaver on Pentecostalism, but we also interviewed Anthony Scoma on the history of the Assemblies of God. I mean, we've done a lot of work on a lot of these. So if you want to dive in deeper to some of these specific Christian traditions, go check out some of those videos and I'll, I'll dump them here in the links of the description of this video. Michael, do you have anything you want to add before we wrap up this program? Oh, I think uh, just to kind of help make sure our, our uh, audience doesn't sort of get lost in the weeds here. We started to to kind of dive into some of the very small branches. But I think when it comes to church history, what can be really helpful is just to think of the macro movements, the big, like if you think of a tree, do the twigs matter? Yes, every twig matters, <laughs> but there are big branches. And uh, and of course, if, if we consider the trunk Christ, uh, hey, every branch matters, even if the the branches are a little bit different and uh, and every down to the twig, it all matters. But I think that just mentally when thinking through church history, probably the biggest ones to think through would be the Great Schism of 1054. That was the separation between East and West where it went Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic. And after that great schism that was rooted in the famous filioque clause, does the Holy Spirit proceed from just the Father or does he proceed from the Father and the Son? So you had this big split and, uh, and the concentration of Roman Catholic power and then Eastern Orthodox over here. And that continued for a time. And then Eastern Orthodox has continued to go their way and do their thing. And they're, 
uh, they're all around the world. And then within the Western branch, you had in 1517, the split between Protestantism and uh, the beginning of the split, Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. And so you have three major branches. And then within Protestantism, which is, of course, ours, uh, it breaks down. We gave four breakdowns when we include Anabaptists, but really the big ones are Lutheranism, Anglicanism, and Reformed. And so uh, the the Lutherans, they were the kind of first, they came out with the five solas that we talked about. Anglicans, uh, that was a breakoff related to the Church of England and, the Hen and Henry VIII, but, uh, but it's a more Episcopal form of government. And then you have the Reformed churches, uh, which are going to have a strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God and their Reformed confessions we didn't really even get into. Um, but, uh, but those are the, the big branches and then everything else that you get into, whether it's the Methodists or the Baptists or, uh, the Puritans or any of the others, they all fall under one of these branches. So, uh, so East West, and then within the West Protestant Catholic, and then within the Protestant Reformed Lutheran Anglican. So there's, there are your big branches. I think that's just, uh, it's more of a, just kind of. Uh, categorization closing comment than it is sort of an inspiration one, but I, I think it's helpful. Super helpful. Michael, thank you so much. Other Michael, who's not with us anymore because you had to go take care of your kids, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. Uh, if you'd like to support the channel, you can do so. Top two links in the description. The top one is for PayPal. The one right underneath it is for Patreon. If you choose to give five bucks a month, you get access to Patreon, extra content there. And if you're interested in learning more about church history and the origins of some of this stuff, I will add links in the description. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to Remnant Radio. And we'll see you next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. Sorry, I can see Michael's face as he's reading a text I sent him and I'm cracking up. Love you guys. Hit the subscribe button. Blessings. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.